Hey everybody, this is Nick Gibson. Welcome to the Engage and Quip, pod, Quip podcast. I have with me a guest named Chris Walker. He's actually the dad of a member of our church, Kenai Walker. And um, we've been fishing a couple of times and I wanted to bring him on because he has a background in natural science and also being a Bible-believing, gospel-believing, Jesus-believing, resurrection-believing, and Christian. And I wanted him just to give you another example of somebody who is like working out their faith and is knowledgeable about natural science. Um, let me just say before I pull you in here, Chris, um, that we're going to have a series of these kinds of podcasts, and um, my goal on them is not to fight with any of my guests or to try to get them to say anything in particular. What, what I, All I want you is, as a listener, to hear a number of Christians who have expertise in the natural sciences and theology, um, how they have grappled personally with it. I'm neither endorsing nor attacking um, anything any of them say. Um, I just want you, as the listener, to realize these things can be grappled with Different people are thinking them through in different ways. There's a lot of diversity in how people do it. And I want to give you the maximum num- way, number of ways to think through it. So, Chris, welcome. Hopefully this will be fun. Thank you, Nate. And um, we're next at some point we'll go fishing and catch fish. Other than in Arkansas. Maybe you can come fishing with me yeah. rather than the reverse. Yeah. I don't have a really high bar to get over at this point. Yeah, that's right. All right. So, um, Chris, why don't you tell us just a little bit about your um, about your both your story with um, biology and your story with Jesus and how they sort of like begun to intersect. Like what's your background? How'd you become a Christian? How'd you become a scientist? So I was, uh, I was born into a Christian family. Um, Both of my parents were medical doctors, which was somewhat unusual for particularly my mother being female going to med school in the fifties. Um, well-grounded Christian family, good father who taught us truth, um, but also allowed us to, to to make that truth real for us, not pushing it on us, but hey, here's the truth, deal with it. Um, I simplistically, and I think we all need to do this simplistically, um, realized at the age of, I don't know what, seven, eight years old, that that I wasn't a particularly good person and that the only way that I would be accepted by God was through Christ. And, and that was, a for me, a very specific point in time, wow, I can't do this on my own. And Christ is the answer. And I I fell in love with Christ at that point. How old were you? Seven or eight. Don't really, I can't put a date on it. Don't know when that actually happened. But it was a, a very specific wake up. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fallen and in that fallenness, therefore bad. And Christ can change that for me. So, um... I was, I was smart. I didn't. It was, I was forty before I got comfortable with. Hey, you're smart. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was so smart as a seven-year-old that rather than you remember the old uh, Indian forms that they that for learning how to write. It was mm-hmm. a, a, I think it was called a big red Indian tablet. It had solid lines and dotted lines and you were supposed to make your capital oh, yeah. letters mm-hmm. really perfectly height wise and then your small letters and and they wanted you to make write capital A across one line and capital and then lowercase a b c I would write short stories cuz I already knew how to write and because of that I failed first grade because I just wouldn't follow the rules um I had a meeting yeah. with my it's parents It's amazing how different your son is than that Sarcasm. Sorry. Following the yeah. rules, you mean? He's yeah. just he's a free spirit. So, yeah. um, so I had a meeting with my parents and the principal that said, you can do first grade over again or you can do summer school. And I had visions of fishing all summer, so I opted to do first grade again. Mm-hmm. And they made it explicitly clear that you needed to do what you were told. And so from then forward, I made straight A's and did jump through every hoop I was asked to jump through school-wise, academically-wise, up until my junior year in high school where I said, okay, enough is enough. I quit. 
and I dropped out of high school. Um, found found a way to get to Europe. Spent a couple of years in Europe under the auspices of an exchange program, although I never went to school while I was there because I was leaving school. Uh, did a lot of growing up living in Europe for a couple of years on your own. What uh, parts of Europe? Uh, initially, I went to Germany. I ended up in Gothenburg, Sweden. Okay. Jutebori. And this was in what years? Just to give people a sense of what year. 1979. So this is Iron Curtain. Communism is all happening still. I mean, you're in, in Western in, in, Europe. In Eastern Europe, yeah, you're yes, in Western absolutely. Europe, but this is still like a... This is still... Iron prior, Curtain Europe and all yeah, that. So, so I made You didn't take a train over to Prague for dinner in those No, days. no, but I don't know if you'll remember this. How old are you? I'm 43. So 77 is when I was born. Okay, so you probably don't remember... The Russians invading Afghanistan in the summer of 1979. Probably not. And the Moscow Summer Olympics was supposed to occur in 1980. And the Western world boycotted those Olympics in about October. Don't quote me on these dates. I'm doing this from memory. And I decided with a group of my friends that we were going to go to Moscow in February of 1980. And we did knowing that the Olympics were being boycotted. But while we were there, the Russian people learned that their Olympics were being boycotted. We had known it since October. Mm-hmm. And that really opened my eyes as to how closed that part of the world was in terms right. of information. So it was months later, and they had they didn't even know. They didn't even know. Yeah, I, I was actually listening to the just, this just today, actually, about this in China, that they're like young people in China learning in schools don't know what's happening. It's, it's, they don't know Tiananmen Square happened. Like whole swaths of younger Chinese population have no idea. Right. And, and it's imposed ignorance. Mm-hmm. So I think we can get from this story also that you have not personally thrived as a rule follower in your life. That would be accurate. That's part of the story we're hearing. That, okay. So, and then you learned some Swedish along the way. Are you are you Swedish of descent? Not Swedish of descent. Manuel Protosvenska, that's a bra. Maybe you have a maybe you have a Swedish listener out there that yeah. will understand that. I, it's possible. Um, okay, great. So then what? So, I came back to the U.S. No, no interest in furthering my education. Met this beautiful young woman named Tracy, who I eventually married. Mm -hmm. She will deny this, but she let it be known that uh, marriageable males had college degrees. (laughs) So I crammed a four-year degree in biology with a minor in chemistry into two and a half years. Um, She agreed to marry me when I had one course left. We got married. Um, didn't really know what we were going to do necessarily. We were both applying to grad school, which didn't work out. She got a job teaching German. She, she spent time in Germany and speaks German. So she was teaching German at a junior college. I was working for a company called Enviro Sciences doing environmental impact statements for gas pipelines. Ooh, fun. And I get a phone call in a hotel. I was in northern Florida, Crestview, Florida. I get a phone call from a professor at A&M who said to me, I have a Regents Fellowship for you if you'll come do graduate work in my lab. I have no idea who this guy is. And, and we don't need to get to the details of how he figured out who I was. But, but the offer was, here's a free ride to grad school if you want to go. So I went, worked for a year doing genetics on onions in a horticulture lab. Um, Got sideways with that professor over scientific methodology. It wasn't ugly, but we agreed that I really didn't need to continue in his lab. At that time, there there was a million bucks available through the Texas legislature for Ph.D. students of of Hispanic descent, but there was a lawsuit that didn't directly affect that, but it made them change that from from Hispanics getting this money to people doing Ph.D. research in South Texas. 
So I applied for that money, got that money, changed labs into wildlife and fishery sciences, and did a PhD on population genetics of ocelots in South Texas and northern Mexico. That's a kind of salamander, right? No, it's a kind of cat. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, sorry, okay. So, they so, have ocelots in southern Texas? Not many. Okay. At, at that time, our our guess, our best guess was 120 total in the state. Whoa, okay. But more in Mexico. I'm Lots more in Mexico. Common hen house predator when you get to northern South America. <laughs> but but nonetheless endangered in Texas. So right. Endangered species population genetics. So I complete that degree. Um and there was a opportunity to basically do the same type research in Sweden on wolves, lynxes, wolverines, bears, the big four carnivores. Actually, there's called the big five carnivores in Sweden, which are those four plus humans. Um, so I spent two and a half years as a postdoc teaching, doing research with grad students, doing population genetics on those those four species primarily. Sweet. After having spent two and a half years in, not wanting to make this political, but a functional communist state, which is Sweden, they call themselves social democrats, uh, I had had all I wanted of that social pressure and even more than I wanted of the politics of academia. Mm-hmm. And... To, to the point of I was going crazy and my wife knew it and I couldn't sleep and, and things were really ugly for a while for me mentally mm-hmm. until one night, two o'clock in the morning, my wife says to me, let's go home. And I said, that's a great idea. So I turned the four-year contract I had on my desk in unsigned and made plans to come back to Texas, to the U.S. I then spent a year and a half or so trying to land another academic job. Didn't do it for various reasons that we won't get into. And my father-in-law, my wife's father, said, you know, you've got these three grandsons of mine that you need to take care of, and my daughter, let me teach you how to do oil and gas land work and make money. Mm-hmm. So I became an oil man and did that for 20 years and still do that to mm-hmm. a, not a great degree, but to somewhat. And then recently you got in, you started to get involved in some more research with genetics, didn't you? So now with, with a uh, good friend, we have started what is called pro young research and we're doing basic, we've built a laboratory, have about five employees and we're doing basic science research on aging and what that means biologically, physiologically, genetically. Yeah, I remember you and I had a long conversation about a fish that only lives like 20 days. Yes, so I'm not I'm not well versed in those fish, but yeah, there's there's some there's some really good models out there that have very short lifespans which become interesting research models to understand this whole thing of aging right yeah okay so that's some of your background you've got how many kids i have have three sons kina's 27 kemp is 25 kali's 22 all right so you're christian you did this science work it occurred to you that People, uh, people uh, correlate scientific knowledge with natural history, and there are some parts of the Bible, including the first chapters of Genesis, that give some depiction of natural history, right? And um, at some point, you origins for sure worked to put this together for yourself to make sense in your mind. Yeah. So in in a decade of my life, more or less, I was all of my colleagues, the majority of them were agnostic, um, believers only in evolution, in in the broad sense of evolution, you know, biochemical nothingness to to the complexity of mankind. 
mm-hmm. that's that's unfair in their own minds, in my opinion, because it violates all kinds of ideas of of probability. Mm-hmm. It violates laws of physics. Just it, it, it simply could not have occurred, and it's disingenuous for someone to say, "I believe that it's in, in its entirety." Do you feel so, like the, some of those people, after a couple of like hard drinks, would have like admitted that and been like, "Look, it's the theory." They'd be like, "Look, it's the theory." Truly, there are some parts I have no idea how we would solve, but this is the theory we work out of, and so it's good enough for me. And that that was their attitude, but they knew it had major some some real hard problems. Most will say, yes, there's issues, mm-hmm. but the issues are outweighed by the obviousness of of this has occurred. Mm-hmm. So I would argue that, you know, in my lifetime, the age of the earth has been increased and increased and increased, not because of new empirical evidence that says the earth is older, but because the earth has to be that old for us to have beaten the improbable odds of evolution having occurred. Mm-hmm. But, but, but Nick, I, I'm, a, I'm a true believer in evolution. I, 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 the, the, the Darwinian idea of survival of the fittest is observable. It's obviously true that things have changed over time. On the other hand, the complexity that we see could not have been created by chance. There must be a designer. And that designer, in my mind, is is the God of the Bible. And, and in fact, if we look at, at, at John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And, and we look at Genesis, and God is the Creator. So in my mind, Christ is the Creator. Mm-hmm. Do you, so, so, so um, I, I've talked to some evolutionary theorists. I don't think this is your view, but it may trigger you talking about what you want to, um, who believe that one of the issues in evolution as a comprehensive theory is that it, it requires information. There's like, there's a significant information problem. Um, both the young earth creationists that I've talked to will champion this idea. Also just general apologists and people who are, who are, who criticize evolution as a totalizing religion will say, you know, one of the problems with as a, as a big totalizing view is there's a heck of a lot of information necessary, right? There's, there's a creative, there's a creative thing that's needed. Um, is that one of the ways you look at it or how do you, like, how do you, how do you look at it's, so, its limitations relative to God as a creator? So I, I think the biggest problem with, with evolution in that grand scale and, and the apologists for creationism have created these terms that many evolutionists won't even talk to you about because they're creationist-created terms, mm-hmm. microevolution versus macroevolution. Um, I don't like the terms, but I get where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. And the and the microevolution part, many creationists will say, oh, yeah, I believe in microevolution. It's microevolution I can't palate, right? Right. Um, that there's there's I, I, change there's change but that there are the outer barriers of change that yes so so we, we've got this body of evidence that shows microevolution is occurring mm-hmm. and the evolutionary theorists say okay let's extrapolate that both directions mm-hmm. and now we've encompassed microevolution mm-hmm. um, I also hear creationists argue that God created the species just like they are. And and that's when I want to say, well, you just don't know very much about animals' life mm-hmm. because because new species have been created. So so one of the big questions I look at is and frequently stump people with saying, okay, if if that's true, define species for me. And your your evolutionist, your trains evolutionist will will immediately spit out one of a number of species definitions. 
And the creationists are like, well, you know, species. Well, okay, what's a species? Mm-hmm. Um, I like to go, I like to look at it historically as to where we come up with the definitions and, and when and who put those together. So most people want to start at Darwin. Well, it doesn't start with Darwin. It, it, you, you definitely need to go back to to Carl von Linnaeus um, or Carolinus Linné, if you will, who was a Swedish botanist, and he published the Système Naturé in, I think, don't quote me on this, 1735? I knew you were going to make this about Sweden. No, it's not about Sweden. It's about Linnaeus. <laughs> so, so he used a a rank classification way to describe life primarily botany but 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 he morphed into looking at plants animals and minerals and in his original publication he had three kingdoms so so he, he gave us what we and it's morphed a lot obviously when you start something and and other people start using it they refine it so he originally had three kingdoms, which were plants, animals, and minerals. You've maybe even heard questions, uh, games that start out with, is this a plant, an animal, or a mineral? Well, yeah. that, that, that goes back to Linnaeus. Um, Kids have been playing that on car road trips since the 1700s. Yeah, yeah. maybe cart trips, who knows. But his rank classification scheme was not unique to him. I mean, you can go back to Plato and Aristotle and see how they were classifying things by coming up with a rubric on how does it get put in category A, B, or C. And this, you're, you're talking about this because you're going to say that they're how we classify a species or how we like mark off a particular group within which things change and vary is going to matter as to whether or not macroevolution or microevolution is relevant absolutely so so if we take the the currently accepted there's been a couple added on top and and people splitters as they're known in the biological world want to come up with even more and more and more categories to classify things into mm-hmm. but but what most people are taught in school is the Linnaean hierarchy, which is kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. And that genus species is the scientific name for an animal or a plant. And I think in Linnaeus' mind, what he wanted to do was create a universal language for the classification and identification so that science could discuss and know they were discussing the same thing. And that binomial nomenclature was created by Linnaeus, and it's what's used today. Mm -hmm. So we move forward. That's 1735. We move forward to 1858 when Darwin is coming up with his ideas of survival of the fittest and evolution. And there was a geologist... Alfred Wallace, who was having similar ideas, and they were having a debate amongst themselves and realized that they needed to publish it. So they made a they made a joint presentation to the Linnaean Society in London and threw this idea out for the world. Um, they didn't agree on everything. And it's it's not necessarily not necessary to agree on everything to have a good discussion um, but that started the ball rolling into this whole concept of things happened on the planet that were because of mother nature not because of father god mm-hmm. and and it's been a stumbling block for many since that time not until the 1950s did we get a good working definition for that category of the Linnaean hierarchy called species that was more or less universally accepted? And that was Ernst Meyer in the f- sometime in the 50s. And that definition is a species is any population of animals that is capable of reproduction and their offspring are reproductively viable. So that excludes hybrids. 
Okay. And, and that's how we define species. Is that what God created? And, and, and I've often wondered, when we look at the scriptures, we look at Genesis, mm-hmm. God, God doesn't tell us that he created the species. He created kinds. He talks about the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the cattle of the field. And he says, you know, be fruitful and multiply. What I have, this is for myself, you know, which, which one of Linnaeus's categories is equivalent to God's kind? And because I'm better versed in mammals than anything else, the, the category of family is the category that I believe is the created kind. So in, in classification, the families that we see in mammals are, for example, the canidae, or all of the dogs. There's lots of different kinds of dogs. They're all in the family canidae. Mm-hmm. The felidae. There's lots of different kinds of cats, lots of different species of cats, even multiple genera of cats. But they're all cats. And they're all easily recognizable as cats. So I think God created these kinds, we'll say the cat kind, a member of the family Felidae, and and commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. And I've stumbled on that. Is being fruitful and multiplying redundant? Is that the same thing? Or are those two different commands? And I think it's two different commands. I think multiplying is make more like you, more of your kind. But I think the being fruitful part is in keeping with God's command to spread out on the planet. There were all of these different available niches that didn't have any cat kinds living in them. And God Mm -hmm. gave that original cat kind that he created sufficient genetic diversity so that the selective pressure of different niches would choose the genes that allowed that cat kind to be successful in this new novel niche. So you've got African lions that are living in very arid conditions, and you've got Bengal tigers that are living in the jungle, and you've got jaguars living in the jungle, and you've got mountain lions living in the desert. All of them are a created cat kind. All of them could could be traced and placed into a single group with a single common ancestor, which is what phylogeneticists try to do, to say they had a common cat kind ancestor. But all of those species were novel species created by the system that God set up when he created it with lots of diversity for Mother Nature, if you will, the various niches available to cat kinds, Mm -hmm. to evolve into and to be exploiters thereof. Okay. And, and and, And that works with humans, too. You know, blonde hair and blue eyes was a better niche in the higher latitudes than dark hair and dark eyes was in the equatorial areas. Mm-hmm. So humankind has, you know, arguably, other than, than, than we're the ones making up the rules, um, mm-hmm. the possibility of being multiple species per the definition but that all of the species of humans are capable of reproduction and producing reproductively viable offspring, so maybe that's not the best definition of species, but it's one that we can work with. So how does this, I mean, how does some of that stuff you said help Christians trying to deal with what they think are problems with between Genesis and what seems to be the majority of scientific consensus around them. Does that way of thinking, the way of thinking you've just described, help a couple believer who's trying to sort out 
how to think creationistically and how to think scientifically like the involvement yeah, of god so, and the involvement so, of mother nature so, so so this idea that thinking scientifically is somehow mutually exclusive to thinking god's creation i, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive at all and I'd like to add a caveat here that I mentioned to you before we started this conversation, which is these ideas that we're discussing are not salvific. So, Why do you think that? You're just saying that it's not part of the specifically part of the gospel as a discrete belief. Yeah, so, for so, so salvation is God's love explicitly for fallen humans. And it's, it's I'm 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 simple like a sheep, okay. John three sixteen encompasses the gospel, in my mind, in its entirety. Mm-hmm. If God so loved the world that He could give Himself, His Son, to die for me, and and that produces salvation, that produces an ability for me to know that I will spend eternity in the presence of that creator God, that's amazing. What did I have to say about creation and evolution in that? Absolutely nothing. So, 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 so it does not prevent someone from meeting Christ where they are if they're a hardcore evolutionist that says, I don't believe in creation. Well, believing in creation doesn't, in some sort of human put together, well, God must have done it this way because because this is why I interpret Genesis. Mm-hmm. And you, you can't believe that anything has ever changed. It's been static since God created it. Mm-hmm. I will say many of the discussions I've had with very intelligent, very respectable, smart men and women who were agnostic at best, sometimes outspoken atheists. If I started the conversation about Christ with, you got to believe in seven days of creation, they would have never listened to another word I had to say. Because they would say, well, you're just an idiot. You know, you, you can't believe that. And if that's what's required to believe that Christ came for me and loves me, then I want nothing to do with that. Okay, so there's okay. So there's a couple of things here. One is I, I don't know if you can get away with calling yourself smart at the beginning and then calling yourself simple now. Like it's true that the gospel is a direct, discrete message, right? I, but in most of the conversations I've had with, let's say, young earth creationists, people who believe in seven literal 24-hour days, right. approximately six to 10,000 years ago as the origin of all nature, um, they wouldn't say, most of them wouldn't say, believing in a literal six-day creation or a, like, believing in that text as it seems to present itself isn't, isn't technically a question of salvation. But what it does is, is it sets the way you, you're interacting with God's written word, the scriptures, and how, like how you're going to interpret it and what you're going to do with the Bible. And so the problem that I think that they think is, is that if you don't believe those first chapters of Genesis, the way they seem to narrate it without feeding in a lot of scientific knowledge we get afterwards, the view is, is that what, what it does is undermines our view of the scripture and the scripture is our main testimony about Christ. So it's authority is critical as a testimony by which we get information about Christ and hear him preach to us and therefore put our faith in him so that the relationship between the two though, believing in six days of creation isn't, um, isn't salvific. It is strategically critical from a intellectually developmental perspective in terms of how you come to believe in and trust the Bible and therefore, it's testimony about God's Christ. Right. Does that make sense? So, so one of the things I'm jealous to find is a truthful way to help people see that um, these early chapters of Genesis are the Word of God written. They can be received as the Word of God written. And they are as integrated as they should be 
with scientific knowledge that is true, right? And so I'm I'm very much with the young Earth creationist. If a certain scientific idea isn't true, then we should attack Christians should attack it. If a certain scientific idea is in fact true, I don't see much sense in attacking it because I think the God who I believe is truthful in the scriptures has also been true in creation and has given us the creative capacity, intellectual capacity to discover that which he has done in creation. And so a creational truth is as much a truth of God as truths in the scripture, though it might, might, might be harder to discern it or interpret it. it. It's level of truth is the same. It would both are tr- true. Right. right. So, sense. so, so going back to what I said earlier, I do not perceive pure creationism and pure Darwinian evolution to be mutually exclusive. I believe them both to be true. Pure creationism and pure Darwinism. Absolutely. But by Darwinism, you just mean variation in natural selection among kinds, among family Um, subgroups that create increased speciation. Right. That's evolution. Over over any period of time. That's over 50 years. Over, That's quote oh, pure Darwinian evolution. Absolutely, because when most people so, hear so, that so, phrase, so, they think they four think years they think and, they think the big long right. geologic time evolution that started with a with a biochemical mix soup and ended up with mm-hmm. the, the, the current top of the evolutionary scale, which is humans. Right. Okay. Most intelligent, most diverse, most widespread cosmopolitan affects our own environment. Okay, so 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 we're at the pinnacle of evolution. We the the human species, at least for this environment. Right. For, for now, it's not over yet. Right? Yeah, but uh, Chris, I think one of the I think one of the issues I think the way you put it is is relatively helpful. I think one of the things that really chafes at my creationist brothers and sisters is that. The, the evolutionary scientist who doesn't believe in creationism, that is that God the Father did a bunch of things, but he watched Mother, created Mother Nature, then Mother Nature did everything. Their frustration is, is that the Bible talks about creation expressing the glory of God. And they think that, uh, and they hear scientific people saying, well, it is glorious. Evolution is glorious. Like over all this time, with all these things, through all these scientific principles, all this came to be, it is glorious. And, he, and, and they say, that's not what scripture means when it says that creation is an expression of the glory of God. It means that in all of its greatness, it was created by God the Father. It didn't evolve through nature, the mother. Right. And so it so, bothers. So, it really bothers them when, when evolutionary scientists who see, see it as the, as the big explanation say, but evolution is that beauty and glory. And they're like, I don't think that's what it means. Well, I, I, I again... Call me a fence sitter, if you will, but 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 I can agree with both of those philosophies. In that, if you look at what humans have tried to create, we've never gotten close to so much as a bacterium. They're 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 more complex than our feebleness, our simpleness is capable of. Mm-hmm. But God, the Creator in my mind, created kinds not only that were static, capable of, of reproducing and, and multiplying, mm-hmm. but he created them with such plasticity that when they encountered new environments— They were inherently capable of variation. They were inherently capable of morphing into something that would be successful in that new environment. Mm-hmm. That 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 adds to God's glory that he not only made I'm, I'm gonna stick with the cats. He not only made cats, but he made them plastic enough that they could change for the better. That and, inf- and that information he put that information in them. That information in my mind was was created at the time the cat kind was created. Mm-hmm. It was a huge amount of diversity in the gene pool that was contained within that cat kind. Mm -hmm. And by changing the frequency of those created genes allows them to become more successful in a greater amount of a greater variety of habitats. That, 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 that is, that is glorious. It's just exciting.
and, and I don't want to bore you with with lots of lots of evidence of things evolving. Okay, I mean, there's 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 plenty of really smart people that have done research on various groups of plants and animals and say look this is where it started and this is where it now is but look it's now morphing into these other things but you would argue that all those are within this scope of family i would well for mammals for mammals okay so and that's that's just my expertise okay mm-hmm. um you know does does the kind that linnaeus outlined for us work with with the created plants because there's lots of goofy genetic stuff going on with plants mm-hmm. it does it work with with amoeba with viruses with bacteria with fungi i don't know if the family category remains constant to be equivalent to what god said he created in terms of kind mm-hmm. but it seems consistent to me within within the class mammalia that family is the equivalent to the created kind yeah. that we see in the scriptures. So Chris, I don't, I mean, I don't know anybody who holds to a young earth creationist view or something like that, who says they don't believe in evolution, who has a problem mentally with the idea of the capacity of speciation within families. I think what, what most of the young earth creationists that I know say is they say evolution and then the next phrase they say is millions and millions of years. Like the thing they're upset about is this extremely long time scale. Right. And, and, and I spoke to that early on. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think be, because of the universal acceptance or near universal acceptance of macro evolution by the scientific community mm-hmm. has necessitated these massive amount of times because they're scientists and they can't deny what I would argue is the one true science, which is mathematics. Mm -hmm. And the mathematics says, if it did happen this way, you had to have lots more time. Mm -hmm. And your young earth creationist, which I'm not opposed to to being a young earth creationist, it certainly could have happened in the amount of time, six to 10,000 years. Given that you started with a created entity that was already so complex, you now don't need that much time because because the big stumbling block for primordial soup to human is is the accumulation of genetic information is the accumulation of enough complexity to start moving towards human. So is it possible? And I'm I'm gonna go real real uh, geeky on you here for just a second. Is it possible for a mRNA molecule that can be translated into a functional protein to, by happenstance in that soup, to be produced? Absolutely, it's a low probability, but it's probable. But you add to that probability the machinery to read that mRNA being accidentally produced. Mm-hmm. random chances and the amino acids that are needed to build that protein being available for that machinery to use to read that mrna you've now added level upon level of upon level of improbability and improbabilities can be beaten given enough time eventually somebody's going to win the lottery but we're talking about odds that are grossly worse than going down to the convenience store and buying a lottery ticket. And winning. And, 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 and with modern science, as we progress forward to understand this thing that we call creation, to understand this thing we call life, the more we learn, the more complex it is, the longer it would have taken for it to have arisen. Can you give a little feel for that? Like... In what sense, like I, I've heard people say before that, so for example, with, with ENCODE and some of these genetic processes where people were saying that like an enormous amount of D- our DNA was probably evolutionary junk DNA, that it was, it was relevant at some point to, to, de- to like make things happen biologically in our bodies. But like most of it at this point was, was essentially junk and we were only reading a certain portion of it to get the the biological form we have right now. But then as things moved on and code was like, well, it's like, it's more like 95% and it might be a hundred. And then I've heard people say epigenetically, we've been finding that 
particular parts of the DNA sequence are actually multi-coded so that like if you read this portion of the DNA, it tells you this for this thing. And then you read that part of that same code overlapping and that codes something else that like there's and, multiple and, coding overlaps within, which we've never even done in computer programming yet. Right. Like computer so, programs so, so, in so. the most advanced computer programs we have don't do that, which is crazy. Yeah, so so now we're to the ooh aha moment for your research scientist, which says, I'm looking at this, and it's complex, but we understand it. And then we realize we're only looking at layer one of potentially a near-infinite number of layers. And what was complex within our understanding at this juncture in history mm-hmm. becomes multitude, multifold times more complex the more we understand, mm-hmm. which which does one of the, one of two things. It says, okay, we got to add time to how long we've been working on this problem. We, we, Mother Nature, has been working on this problem to create the complexity of life that we're looking at now, or we have to insert a point of creation. You know, there's there's a growing number of people that are believing that that point of creation was some extraterrestrial life being. Mm-hmm. Okay, Th- that that to me is simply a way to say, well, I have to have a designer, but it wasn't God. Mm-hmm. Well, my question for them is, well, where'd the extraterrestrial being come from? Okay, God's infiniteness and 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 his character of having no beginning and no end is the only answer for that injection of design and and it frustrates me as a biologist when people will will talk about design well that that limb on that bat was designed for flight or that limb on that porpoise was designed for swimming can't okay they use the word design and yet they say but it just evolved. Mm-hmm. And, and I it's say literally those, those things are mutually exclusive. Right. Either it evolved or it was designed. You make the decision. Mm-hmm. But it didn't. Right? both didn't happen. They're, they're, they're not the same. Those, those yeah. two concepts are, in fact, mutually exclusive. Yeah. Okay? But it's, it's, it's glorious for me to say... How magnificent was the creator to not only have been able to create, but to create something that in and of its creation is plastic enough to change through evolution. That's mind-boggling to me. Do you think that if... Okay, so what would you say if somebody said, Chris, I feel like we're playing a game here that like to say, I believe in Darwinian, I believe, I believe fully in evolution... And what you mean by that is that animals can change in different environments governed by div- a diverse capacity within them genetically and limited by or and and then selected by natural selection, right? But that you but that you say but I don't think that that accounts for how biological life arose and developed up to the complexity of biological families. Would do you think people would say, well, that's that's not what evolution means? What evolution means is that life slowly changed through the, right the process from like single cells or a few celled organisms to what we have now. And it sounds like what you believe is that's actually not really a credible story. That the, the idea of it's not a credible evolu- story. evolution it's- as a big ex- explanation from amoebas to ocelots doesn't work, but. The idea of cat to cats and whale to whales, and that yeah, so, works. So, so hang on. The, the, the biggest step, amoeba to ocelot, mm-hmm. in, 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 in the mind of Nick, that's a huge step. Okay? Yeah. In the mind of Chris, it's not the amoeba to the ocelot that's the big step. It's the nothing to the amoeba that's the big step. <laughs> oh, no, I totally agree that's okay? the biggest that's step. That's a much bigger step than right. amoeba to ocelot. Right. And, I think and, sometimes and, people and, think, and, oh, and, well, single-cell organism, that's not very complex. But actually, cells are very it, complex. It, absolutely, yeah. and, and that's my point. There's so much complexity 
in what we humans think of as simple life forms. Isn't that the, it wasn't that the argument that was made like in the nineties by like Michael Behe that he's like, look, the cell was Darwin's black box. He couldn't see what was in there. He thought these things would just evolve. But now that we actually know what happens in cells, we know how complicated each cell is. These are very complicated things and they all lead on each other in various ways. And that's a problem. So if we look at, but I know he doesn't hold that view anymore. Like he's softened it. It's since the nineties. I I can't speak for him. (laughs) Speak for you. Yeah. So uh, again, going back to this idea and, and I've never, I've never interjected this into this conversation, but as you might be able to see, I've had this conversation more than once. Mm-hmm. Um, God's glory, as revealed by creation, as real revealed by life on earth, is is this huge open door presentation of who God is, and and how feeble we are, how simple we are. We've we've spent hundreds of years post post the introduction and discovery of microscopy where we could start looking at cells, right? Mm-hmm. So Lewin Hook created a microscope and people went, oh, there's stuff moving around that I can't see. And we move forward until we, we discover genes and, and Mendel does his research and... and and then we get to Watson and Crick in the 50s who actually described DNA in the molecule. Mm-hmm. Step by step by step, we humankind add to our knowledge base about this thing that we call creation or this thing that we call life. And yet, I don't think we're anywhere close to opening our eyes to the complexity and how it actually works. Mm-hmm. Still today, we, we know a lot. Yeah, yeah, I think you were saying before we started that we're all going to have a First Corinthians thirteen experience about life and science, not just about yeah, ourselves. That, just, even beyond life and science, doctrine. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to realize that we were trying to conceptualize something very complicated, and we were using God. God had told us stuff so that we could know enough. But things were actually a lot stranger and more interesting and different than we thought. Well, we we like to rely on human logic. And if we can logically say this is the way it must have happened, mm-hmm. then we're comfortable with that. If we can see a progression, a progression that is traceable and reproducible, we're mm-hmm. comfortable with that being truth. But, but God's truths are not necessarily human's truths. Yeah, I mean, John Wesley said this in the 1700s. I know other theologians all around him have said this, that like we understand God by analogy more than exactly. That God gives us these ways to conceptualize him that are essentially analogies, like that God is our father, that he is the Lord of hosts, like the king of all armies. That is, that he's... he's maximally powerful as much as we can understand or that he and he gives us these different ways to conceptualize him that are true and yet they probably don't capture it all and when we see it as it literally is who knows what we're going to see but i think that we'll see that the knowledge that he revealed about himself even if it feels then primitive to us or if it feels like only analogy it still will be have been true and reliable and honest and actionable so that the doctrines that we believe faithfully based on what he's revealed about himself are valid and truthful and we should insist upon them to a certain extent. But that as we get more speculative, thinking that we know how it all must work out because we know these base things that God has told us in the scriptures or in Christ, we may find out that our speculations were way off and And, almost certainly will. and, and, And what we will discover, I think, is is that fallenness, that arrogance, that arrogance that Satan used in the garden to tempt Eve to be like God, mm-hmm. which, was, which, which was absolutely true. 
We go to the end of the third chapter of Genesis, and God says, look, man has become like us, knowing good, good, from, good from evil, mm-hmm. which, which was exactly what Satan said to Eve. But it was Eve's arrogance, and Satan knew what he was doing, mm-hmm. to say, you can be equal to God if you, if you violate the, the one thing God has said is, is taboo, right, mm-hmm. is, is not allowed. Um, when we start to understand more and more about life and understand the biology and finally figure out how, how all the proteins are working and, and all the little peptides are working and why one amino acid change in a protein chain makes it more functional or less functional, th- there's an innate arrogance about godlikeness that I believe blinds many scientists to the truth of the complexity that they're looking at, that it could not have occurred without a designer. Mm-hmm. I understand it. Therefore, it's simple. Well, have you really understood it yet? I don't think so. I think we're, I, I, I really think we're just now, 2020, 2021, on the edge of a exponential growth in our understanding of of life, and, and and we've got new tools. We've got faster computers. We've got mm-hmm. we've we've got tools at our disposal today that people were only dreaming about in 1990. Mm-hmm. So so as an example of that, in the lab that I'm currently working in, we have a sequencer that I could do my entire PhD research on in a morning. I spent five years of my life doing that. But now there's this tool that I could do it all in a, in a day. Mm-hmm. Where will we be? And that's, that's, we're only talking 20 years ago, yeah. 30 years ago. Yeah. Okay. Where will we be in 30 years from now in terms of being able to look into these deep questions that, that historically, recent history, were only dreams of scientists hypothesizing about? I know. Yeah, I, uh, it's it's fascinating and terrifying. The, the humans are no more trustworthy, so it's terrifying. But what we could find out is feels almost unlimited. It's really fascinating, you know, to me. Well, you know, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna maybe err and step a little too far here, but we've been discussing Genesis and creation, and briefly there we we discussed the fall and the temptation, or I did anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, Prior to the fall, there was no such thing as death. Your body, your created body, was designed to be immortal. Why do you die at 80? That's, that's, that's what medical practitioners are looking at, maybe not from that philosophical stint, but, mm-hmm. but in trying to solve the issues of geriatric diseases— you know, that body was really designed to be be forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How much do we have to understand? How little do we understand if we can't figure that part of it out? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the, the most science that I do is directly in relationship to psychology and the complexity of the human mind, how little we know about it always boggles my mind. Even though we've done so much research and we know so much more than we do, it's still... It still feels like... I still feel like I'm using a stone hammer and chisel. You know what I mean? It's it still feels like when people act like we know so much. I remember when I was in anthropology class, I was in a doctoral anthropology class in seminary and um, the professor said, read a quote from the, I think it was from the university of Chicago in something like the 1970s that we had accumulated and discovered something like 95% of, of that, which is possible of knowing. (laughs) And then a couple decades later, somebody was like, well, it, it might be more like a couple percent. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so there's a story. It, there's, there's a lot of hubris. Yeah, there's a lot. Of, uh, I think that's one of the, one of the major downfalls of humans is, is arrogance. Mm-hmm. And, and somehow when we learn a little bit, we... We want to think that we're equal to God. Mm-hmm. 
which is which is a concept for me that's unfathomable. Yeah. Yeah. But there there's a there's a, there's a quote the chairman of the United States patent office in the late 1800s 1898 or something like that who who brags that he's got the best job possible in the world because he's in charge of patenting new inventions and everything that has been invented everything that can be invented already has been invented so I've got an easy job Okay, so uh, to, let's wrap it up. We've we've been talking for about an hour. And, um, so if so, given your experience, your background, your life, walking with Jesus, all this kind of stuff, if you were going to talk to, imagine a younger Christian, like somebody from sixteen to thirty-five in there somewhere, kind of like living in a modern world, living in an age of secular presumption, wanting to believe every truth that there is, not wanting to be fundamentalist in the bad sense. But to believe in the fundamentals of Christ, and yet, you know, wanting to defend what's true, but you know, like there's, there's, I think there could be a lot of confusion in them. How have you come not just to some kind of realization, but to some kind of lasting peace relative to how you walk out trusting God, pursuing natural truth, and pursuing revealed truth? Yeah. So you pointed it out. I said I was smart. I am smart, mm-hmm. and I'm comfortable with that. I concede that. But I'm also simple, and I'm comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. So so smartness on a human scale is not something that you can relate to smartness on a God scale. Mm-hmm. So, so on my, my relationship with Christ, my relationship to God through Christ— I'm the simple one. He's the complex one. He loves me and has made it apparent. Mm -hmm. The world will argue, oh, but everything's relative. Relative to who your family was or how you were brought up or whether you were rich or poor or black or white or just, you know, American or Mexican. You know, you come up with any number of excuses on why you're different, you're special, you're you're not special. Mm-hmm. But God is consistent in his love for humankind. And he is there literally for the taking. Mm-hmm. And wants to be there for you. Whoever whoever you are, you know. Mm-hmm. Rich, rich, poor, whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, unfortunately, I, I think that's a, a human thing, and and really where we started. Linnaeus wanting to categorize life. So Human, a- humans like to put people into categories so that they can divide them, and somehow. Make things relative to to something that's unimportant. It sounds like what you're saying is don't let yourself get too hung up on it. That's exactly what I'm saying. And it's exactly what I said when when I said we're all going to have this this latter part of 1 Corinthians experience. The, The important is salvation. The important is Christ. The important is understanding that I'm simple and I'm fallen, and that there is an answer. Mm-hmm. Looking at all the details of trying to understand things, and, and, and importantly, depending on the scriptures to help us understand those things, mm-hmm. is, is how you go through life. Mm-hmm. But spend time on your knees in recognition of how simple you are to Christ and the Father. Mm-hmm. I think I think one of the one of the most dangerous ideas that is being um, forwarded today is this idea of of relativity that that the answer is different given the situation. 
And the answer is not different. The answer is always Christ. Mm-hmm. My guest today has been Chris Walker, geneticist, Christian, Texan, and speaker of Swedish. Hope you guys enjoy this. Um, feel free to send us some emails and questions if you have them based on this podcast or stuff you're hoping that we'll cover in future episodes on science and faith. Hope you found this helpful. See you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.